This is the goal, to make available for life every place where life is possible, to make inhabitable all worlds as yet uninhabitable, and all life purposeful. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all humankind. Your hosts in England and the Netherlands, Matthew Russell and Julio Prayer. Diddle do da do da do da. Oh yeah, baby. Ober. German Julius Ober. By the way, do you want to do it again with a German accent or a Romanian <laughs> accent? A Romanian accent. You sure? You sure I'll be able to do one? No, no, no. It's fine, Matt. Tell me, tell me who was. <laughs> Hermant Obert. He is a space legend. From memory, and I am going to be doing this from memory, he, he, there's the Hobert, the Obert maneuver, isn't there, where if you fire your thrusters at your lowest point of your orbit um, to get the most amount of bang for your buck. Correct. I'm, I'm sure just that trying was to Obert. think in my mind now. Yes, uh, that's how you raise your orbit. At the, the, at the lower side, you, you 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 fire to raise your orbit on the far side. I'm not going to use mm. the technical terms. And then on the other side, let's say on the on the furthest you are in your orbit, you fire again to circularize your orbit. Mm. But okay, let's go back it, to to the man Julius. I I kind of like his his middle name. <laughs> you you want to just call him Julius? Herman so. Julius, yes. Um, so, um, Austro-Hungarian, German physicist and engineer, legend, mm-hmm. legend of uh, rocketry and space flight at the level of uh, Tsiolkovsky or Goddard, right? Mm-hmm. Um, famous, and it, I mean, I, I'm looking at the Wikipedia article and cheating a little bit, but it just pops out that a notable student was Werner von Braun, which is and and today's guest as well was a student as well isn't that cool yes so cool. so we're now on, we're only two degrees of separation from oberto which is as good as it gets as far as i'm concerned yes uh, this, this is which what i love about interviewing some of my colleagues because i i learn things that they just don't come up during coffee breaks <laughs> yeah by the way one of my uh, lecturers was oberto by the way <laughs> that's just brilliant can you pass can you pass me the, the milk <laughs> oh, excellent so uh yeah well that's that's in part why we chose the the phrase today when we learned that uh, rudiger albat uh, our interview the, the the person we interviewed in this episode he was a student of this of this uh of this person herman julius obert so I will Julio, keep, I will keep uh, stressing the middle name. Just saying. Yeah. So, so Julio. Yes. Give me a little bit of a rundown on our guest today and why and why he's mega cool for this week. Well, Rudiger Albat. I mean, he will give, during the interview. He he gives us a whole rundown of his career, but he's currently the both the the, the head of the Ariane Five program at the European Space Agency and also the future space transportation program, which is basically what and comes what, after Ariane 6 and Vega C, right? And what, and what was Ariane 5 famous for doing this week? 
Arian on Christmas week, Day, no on less. On Christmas Day, uh, Arian 5 uh, launched a particularly paid, I, I think, notable payload. Notable, is that a good word for it? No, notable, yes, yeah, I think uh, notable. Some, some space telescope uh, into a very, very precise trajectory towards the Lagrange point 2. I mean, maybe you know uh, what payload I'm talking about. I think it might be the JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope. Correct, correct. <sighs> so, yes, uh, Rudy has been working uh, quite some time on this one, and I wanted to get a little bit of uh, that experience for our audience. But he wasn't the only person at the launch, was he? He wasn't the only person. We, oh, there, we was have a a the, of, there was a big team at the, at the launch. The, yeah, yes. the, yeah the, he definitely wasn't the only person. But what I'm saying is, Julio, there was someone else there, wasn't there? Someone else at the launch. And, and his name is Julio Aprea. Julius. So tell Julius Aprea. Julius. <laughs> <laughs> Just changed my name. Um, you should change it to, to Herman. Yeah. Herman Aprea. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, 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 was, I had the privilege to also attend the launch. Covering, uh, so, yeah, covering the communications and, and PR aspects of it. So how was it? How was the launch? How did it feel? Um, I, it, was, I, it was the most stressful launch of my life. I, <laughs> I mean, I didn't have as many launches as, as Rudy does under his belt. And many of them I was not directly involved. I was mostly witnessing. But I never felt before that there was so much at stake in, in, in one launch as this one. I wonder how the people in Apollo 11 felt, right? But I, remember, I always remember a phrase when Mark McCrocken came to the show that he basically said something on the lines of that astronauts at the end are just bags of water, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I was extremely, extremely nervous for the launch of Matthias Maurer. Mm. As one of the few currently active astronauts that I I know, and uh, personally, and who I consider a friend, and and you know, of course, you are always worried about the safety of the people you know. He's a lovely bag of water. Yes, <laughs> he's a lovely bag of water. But I could feel the tension in in this launch. I could feel. The, I mean, you also had the VIPs, the clients, the the public, the journalists. You know, everyone was super, super respectful, and and yes, the, the, when when that iconic image of that we just published a video yesterday with a nice quality video on how James Webb, the telescope separates the telescope, not the person, separates mm. from the Ariane Five upper stage. You could really see the, you know the, the shoulders going down the the people starting to breathe again and and when the solar panel deployed and there was the announcement that the payload was what we call power positive that it was running on solar power instead of batteries the the celebration the it, it was incredible I, I really am at a loss of words to describe it eh? the, the joy well, I mean, the, it, the excitement it, it it's got the the joy and excitement. Does it equal out the stress beforehand? Is it is it is it you know if the amount of stress before are you getting the same amount of enjoyment at the uh, on the other side of the seesaw? On the day of the launch, yes, I felt I felt 
more relaxed. It was very, very nice to share a moment of celebration after with the team. And I think that that was unique. But let's remember that we're not out of the woods yet, right? Because the telescope is still no. unfolding and then it will have to cool down and then it will have to calibrate. And then we still have a few months until the, until the first observation. But, but, but it's, it, it's it, you know, well you, have so to, you also have to celebrate the, the intermediate milestones, right? You can, and, and, and this yeah. was a major, major achievement. I felt proud for the team, you know, uh, the, the ESA people, the Ariane Spass people, the Ariane group, this, this whole industry. I even felt very, very proud of this uh, company, Realtra in, in Ireland, that made the cameras. Because if the, the, the impact it has on the public to actually see things, right? To see that separate mm. instead of just hearing that it happened, that you can actually see it. Um, Yes, it's. Uh, I think it's it's one of the highlights so far in my career. This having been a minor, minor part of this launch. Do you know what, Julio? You gave me bragging rights in the fact that I knew someone at the launch. So that's that's how cool it is. <laughs> oh. Thank you, Matt. Like, Thank you, Matt. That yeah, my 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 blood, sweat, and tears. Uh, is is my bragging rights? Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I think we should get to the interview because it's it's a blooming long one, but it's also absolutely epic. Uh, I, I certainly, absolutely. certainly, and I, I like I said that I always love to to bring some of my colleagues because I get to ask them things that I don't <laughs> I don't ask <laughs> randomly. <laughs> I need yeah, the excuse the of an interview, yeah. and I learn a lot about Rudy today, and I'm I'm very very happy. To, to work with him. And, and yeah. I mean, I was happy before, but even more now, you know, I don't know if I got to know him a little bit better and I, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. A, it seems like a really lovely guy. He is. So without any, without any further adieu, Ekuta. The Interplanetary Podcast, putting the ace back into space. We're joined on the podcast by Rudiger Albat from ESA. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Matthew, Matthew, and thank you for having me here this afternoon of the 31st of December. New Year's Eve. Almost the and end of, course, of 2021. And there you go. There was a little clue who I'm joined by also. There's Julio, the effervescent Julio. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, Rudiger, tell us a little bit about your your journey into into space. How you got into space, and what what your kind of childhood interests, etc., were, and, and how you've ended up where you are. Well, this is quite a journey, and it started very early because I'm a pure Apollo kid. So I was born in the sixties, and I was born with black and white uh, television and Apollo was on it and on it and on it. And I followed it from my early days. I was nine years old when uh, Apollo 11 went to the moon and 10 years old when Apollo 13 circled around uh, the moon to come safely back. And so everything started very early. When I was 13 years old, I got a stiff neck because I was always looking up to the skies, up to the skies, until... I had the opportunity to do glider flying in Germany. This you could start very early with 13. So I was a pilot with 14 and flying gliders alone with 14. I had no no right to to drive 
motorcycle and uh, the right to fly fly gliders and so it went on and went on and things become faster and faster and faster and uh, when i was uh, heading to university space was the place to be and when i ended with uh, my university in munich uh, space happened in french guiana and was a young team today you would call that a startup it was not called startup at that moment but roughly 100 people uh, in the jungle starting starting rockets this was absolutely new and uh, mm-hmm. so i went to french guiana i was hired there spent seven wonderful years between ariane one and ariane four and then I came back to Europe and the travel continued and continued and continued up to now. Wow, Rudy, you, you were there since Arian 1. I didn't know that. I learned something new today. <laughs> yeah, I had the opportunity um, to launch eight, uh, eight Ariane 1s to 3 from the first part from Ila 1. Right at and the we, before we go... Before we go a little bit deeper in, in Ariane, that we will be spending a lot of time during this interview, I, I was curious, your childhood was mostly in Germany, right? Yeah. And when you went to Frenchiana, was that your, let's say, your first experience living abroad? Uh, it was. I had the opportunity during my studies to do internships abroad. But the first time I left Europe was in 1986 when I went to Guyana. Okay. And, and you said you went to university in Munich, but yeah. originally you are also from Bavaria or from where? Uh, I'm, I'm I'm from Bavaria, yes. So, and uh, but I didn't select uh, Munich because uh, it was close. I, I selected it because, uh, in terms of space in Europe, in, in Germany, it was really the the place to be. They had excellent uh, tutors there and close connections. Not so much in Europe, but mostly to to the United States. What What was the actual degree that you did? What was the title of it? Uh, Master of Engineering in Aeronautics and Astronautics. He was already decided on that field. I knew that. <laughs> I knew <laughs> that. When, I mean, that's a typical way when you start flying early, you will land uh, around your passion and you have the big opportunity to live a professional life around your passion. And this is really, this is really a great gift. Yeah, because I have to say that when you, you mentioned that you were flying gliders at 14... It, yeah, <laughs> it sounds you. young. It sounds very young. Yeah, but uh, this was the way it went. I had my pilot license before I got a driver license. Matt, how old are your sons? Do you know what? It's actually George wanted to do his pilot's license before he got his driving license. We, he could actually still do that. So, yeah, it, it's it, it'd, be, it'd be quite a good thing to do. I, I believe Neil Armstrong's the same. A couple of the others <laughs> like got their pilot's licenses before their uh, driving licenses. I don't know. Guys. So, as, a, yeah. as a pattern, I'm terrified about that idea. My <laughs> 14-year-old flying a glider. <laughs> I'm kind of more... Different time, more, I guess. I'm, I'm terrified of them driving a car, to be honest. Yeah. Fair enough. Consider, uh, yeah, but... Uh, <laughs> yeah, how bad I was. flying a glider, you generally are surrounded by much more serious people than by taking the car <laughs> yeah. of your, your dad or your mom. <laughs> You're less likely to be driving it back home from the pub. That's mm. what. That's. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry, I I, mm. I I digressed, but I wanted to know more oh, well, about well, that. Well, the, in, the the thing that interests me when you arrived in French Guiana was 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 it literally chopping through the jungle time? As in, presumably when it when the the spaceport out there was yeah. pretty rough when it first started. There was a big transformation running. The first thing which was fun for me was that the people around me were so young. 
we were the youngest launch team of the world. And this was something which was frightening Ariane customers when they came to French Guiana and they saw all these young people very simply because there was no experience in, in Europe and uh, uh, build up experience, you'd better do it with young people. They are simply cheaper. So the average age in the launch team was around 26. And uh, that was really a nice gang. So we were really living together there and having fun together and flying there and uh, ramping up Ariane. When I started, we roughly did one to two launches per year and one of the two might have been a failure. And then came Ariane 4 and within three to four years, a real industry was built and we ramped up up to 12 flights per year, meaning that this became a real launch machine, a real launch factory. And this was something amazing for a young engineer coming, seeing all these pioneers, I met them, uh, but then jumping within nothing of time uh, to a real major industry. It happened, it happened very fast. Like like we saw it again with SpaceX uh, between 2013 and 2017. Everyone was surprised how SpaceX could do it so fast. And everyone in Europe had forgotten that this has already happened in Europe 25 years bef before. I guess youth and, and being fully dedicated, yeah. let's say, having no life other than that job, <laughs> it's a uh, it's a big part of it, I guess. Yeah, We started yeah, so, about yeah. this space nerd discussion. And if you're not a little bit nerdy, you won't support that. And there are people which do not support it. And I have to confess later, I got interested uh, also in other things than, than, than space rockets. And uh, uh, this drove down a little, not my passion, but, uh, but the commitment. If you have a family, if you want to see your kids grow up, you will will make compromises and we all did but this did not limit our passion to to Ariane and to access to space and, and as a little bit of context when you went to French Guiana what year are we talking about and how 80, old were you 86 I was 20 25 years old and you started then with the Ariane 1 there yeah. was a, it was a sort of fast period between Ariane 1 and Ariane 3 it was yes the first Ariane uh, 4 flew in 88 and uh, Ariane 3, Ariane 2 and 3 were retired in 1990. So there was an overlap of roughly roughly three years where both pets were operated in parallel. And this was really fun because the first pet was a copy of uh, a semi-digital analog uh, US pet of the 60s. So we operated... Uh, consoles and computers from the 60s and uh, Ariane 4 was simply the most modern pet ever built in the 80s fully digital and uh, this was a real cultural revolution so it was like if we were allowed to fly at the same time super constellations and 707s so and at that time you were in Ariane Space right yeah okay you're saying that you were with this young team presumably all your colleagues at the time have gone on to be all the various heads and and big cheeses in 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 space in kind of Asa, Ariane, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Is that right, or did they all go off and do different things? Half, half, I would say. Uh, half of them went off and did uh, different things, and uh, these different things could be renting sailboats in uh, in Tahiti, and uh, the other half remained in the space circus. Yes. And there, if you spend a career of 35 years in a growing 
uh, and this was a growing uh, business over the last 10, uh, 35 years. Of course, careers developed. Some of them made quite nice careers. But this was, I don't think that this was the first motivation. The first motivation, I think, was really curiosity to learn as much as you can. And this is something which still astonishes me. Uh, in 1986, I would not have would not have expected to work on rockets over 35 years, but I simply never got bored. I mean, it's hard to overstate, isn't it, how much of an influence Ariane 4 in particular had on, say, commercial space. It's kind of like really, I suppose, in some ways, a, a, the, the first proper commercial space Craft it kind of way before SpaceX did. Oh yes, did it. yes, it was. Is, is is that something that you find a little bit frustrating that 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 kind of history is maybe not talked about as much as it should be? Frustration would be a too strong word. First of all, I'm very grateful that I had the opportunity to live this period, and it was it is true, absolutely true, what you say. This was really a crazy idea born in in, in, in Europe by a couple of people, not more than three, to to to, to do money in space, very simply, and to uh, do commercial business, and uh, to do this. With an Ariane 1 at that time was a little bit crazy. You needed to be a little bit crazy. And to believe that uh, you could build up commercial services for access to space, this was brand new, absolutely not existing anywhere else. And that was something which was really fun, even for me and the launch team, because we were all committed. We were all committed to look to new ways to build new services to customers, to expand our our way of working for them and to do something better than any Air Force launching launching around us. So I'm not frustrated, but I'm, I'm uh, quite happy to see that uh, now there's a second industrial revolution going on and SpaceX started it good, so it's, it's going on and it will give us all even more access to space and uh, it will develop an in, in eighth continent. So, so I'm fine with that too. And Europe will participate to this conquest again. And in a way it has accelerated all the industry, right? Yeah. Because we are all working in this more competitive environment now, which is, I think is a good thing. Well, in terms of Ariane 4, what was the big because it seems like I mean I mean I I'm just talking as a as a total sort of mm. bystander punter type person. It seems like there is a big leap from Ariane four to Ariane five. That presumably there was a great deal of design work, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to make Ariane five. What what was the motivation behind it, and why was it? You know, you were there at the time, so mm. so yeah. Talk us through a little bit how that happened. Uh, the people which have run the sector at that moment being, they had really big capacity of uh, imagination. And when Ariane 1 was born, it was already clear that this, launch, this launcher was born to clone a Delta II for Europe and to get autonomous ex access to space for communication satellites of the PEMD class. PEMD was the class of Delta IV around 1.3 1 metric tons. But at that time, middle of the 70s, the team which imagined Ariane 1 already had built in a growth factor of 4, meaning that they were able to push Ariane, this Ariane 1 
vehicle with the same concept uh, up to five metric tons, even six. So they gave by this the opportunity to do double launches, which was the first again in uh, worldwide, share a launch cost by a factor of two, and then allow growth of uh, spacecraft beyond everything was imagined. I remember when we started the first Big Bird, its name was Big Bird, and it was 4.2 metric tons, and we thought that never, ever again such a big uh, spacecraft would be launched again. But it was because uh, telecommunication via space became a real industry, which was not the case in the in the middle 80s, but in the end of the 80s, it became a real, real industry, and satellites grew roughly 200 kilos per year in order to put more payload, more transponders, gigabytes and gigabytes and gigabytes on board. So there was a tremendous hunger for for gigabytes and these made the satellites growing into classes which did not allow any single launches anymore for Ariane 4. So the last 50 or so Ariane 4 flew all in single, in single launch, no, because the satellites grew up to the limits of Ariane 4, close to five tons. Then came at the same time appetite around Ariane, because this has been becoming a real industry, a real business, so competition grew up, and uh, the empire stroked back again, not the British one, but the US one. <laughs> and then came competition, that was good. So Europe needed something to compete, and uh, Compete would mean that uh, a new launch concept was needed because Ariane 4 was at its limits. And this was one of the reasons to give birth to Ariane 5 because Ariane 5 started where Ariane 4 ended, around 5 ton metric tons, and it's flying today close to 12. Also a big uh, growth potential. So basically the rockets grew with the passengers. And this was true until recently, until electric propulsion popped up in the second half of uh, the last decade. And uh, now we have seen for these big telecom satellites in geostationary orbit that it's over. The big beasts are replaced by smaller electrical spacecraft, but there's something new popping up in this. We see it with uh, OneWeb, imagined in Europe or Skylink imagined in the US by, by SpaceX, meaning that fast telecommunication needs uh, low Earth orbit uh, links via constellations. And this again will produce an industrial revolution in this decade. So basically the launches we see all today and I will not talk about reusability, which will be the third element of revolution. All these vehicles fly today in the Ariane 5 class. Basically, Falcon 9 is a small Ariane 5. Delta 4 is a big. So uh, in, between, in between, you see Proton or the H2 in Japan. All these vehicles are between mid and heavy. Like, like every, all of these rockets back in that design adapted to that existing market that yeah. was of the big telecom satellite that was extrapolated to keep growing until that revolution of electric propulsion that you mentioned, right? Yeah. There was a, 
not a single design driver, but it was clear the, the main de design driver. All these rockets were optimized for transporting heavy telecom satellites to GTO, something which is still a market, but much less than 10 years ago. So there are new design drivers. And, uh, indeed, they, indeed. And, and before we, before we move into these changes that are happening now in the industry, I wanted to ask you a little bit about your, your career during Ariane 5 itself. I remember that, well, one, one of the times, disclaimer, I was working with you as well on, mm -hmm. on a previous uh, version of Ariane 5. Um, so yeah, I, I just wanted to, to get a little bit of a feeling on, on the different roles that you had in Ariane 5 over the years. Thank you. Yeah. My, my generation had the chance to get the opportunity to to live many roles during the career and uh, once i had finished with the uh, with the uh, launch team after roughly 40 40 launches i wanted to learn how business is working and how projects are run and so i became a project engineer during the uh, production start of Ariane 5 and i was co-located in in italy and taking care of the ramp up of this these new big solid uh, boosters which was again a new industry which did not exist before and this allowed me to learn a lot about uh, about projects uh, but not about uh, running a company and after this experience as a project engineer we started to take a new challenge, which was uh, cutting costs of Ariane 5 by a factor of two from 1997 to 2002. And to do this, we had created a cost-killing team, a platform which embedded all major stakeholders, which uh, had a role in the supply chain, being them suppliers or integrators or system uh, integrators, all together around uh, round table. Each stakeholder had the same voice, and this was run in in an embedded mode with taking all these stakeholders on board of this cost-killing team. It was a big success because. Uh, we were able to, not 50%, we made 40, but this uh, is the only example, at least I know, where minus 40% have really been uh, done with the same design and the same uh, production infrastructure. And well, what is the major? Nice, hmm? what, do you recall some major saving? Was it mostly like production means uh, um, how to handle the production line or, or what, what were the sort of changes that so you can recall? One third of the wins came for free by the ramp up from uh, growing from a mean cadence of three to something around six. So this was already giving roughly 15 to 18%. And then came uh, the classical branches you all use when you do, do cost engineering that you look for purchase power. For example, the carbon fibers, we bought them with Airbus together. We invented a lead buyer and we got the carbon fire. This Airbus airplanes had a purchase power factor 10 with respect to us. So we used their purchase power to get our fibers also 
linked to their badges and this uh, brought uh, cost savings of roughly 50%. Organization was a big shot, uh, meaning that we ramped up without creating new infrastructure, meaning that we killed uh, sleeping you times. You distributed the fixed cost. And we distributed the fixed cost fairly uh, over the supply chain. This was the second big uh, big shooter. We simplified management rules. We provided, we were the first one for example, first uh, team in the 90s offering uh, planning information via via internet. This was something which was totally, totally new, a planning tool which was run on our own platform on internet. This was copied by car industry. We were first uh, so innovation was part of it uh, as well, innovative processes. So one example could be the, the fiber placement, which was invented in the 90s and tested first on the vehicle equipment bay of, uh, of uh, Ariane 5. And we were the test bed for these technologies. And when it went well, CASA used them for all Airbus airplane production and uh, today for the A400M. So it's space can also play the role as a door opener in terms of processes, because if it works for space, it will work anywhere. anywhere. So processes were one uh, big shooter as well. There was no big investment behind. It was really firstly brain work. Yeah, so that and that's to try and keep your commercial edge at all times, yeah. so that that you've got this you've got this machine that no one can really catch up with because you're maintaining that commercial edge by nudging your price down, nudging your price down as I you mean, go. We at all, I have the great privilege that I experienced the golden age where all this, uh, all stakeholders had incredible margins. So Ariane was the only access to commercial access to space. There was not a second access after after the Challenger accident and this lasted over more than 10 years. So we wanted to be prepared for the aftermath and it worked quite, quite well because uh, it secured uh, Ariane over nearly 20 years until until the arrival of uh, of uh, space billionaires and and these uh, these improvements i mean you were talking about the cost improvements but just the cost and performance also improvements of n5 kept going over the years up to even up to the launch of uh, james webb or the previous one uh, we are yeah. still talking about increases yeah. in performance this is the reason why ariane 5 is uh, um, one third of the launch costs of an ELV, for example, of a Delta Delta Four or Atlas Five. The the root cause is that there has been performed a big uh, big uh, cost uh, cost killing effort, which has been continued then with Ariane Six, with again uh, spectacular results. Ariane Six being having a price tag. Which is roughly, which is close to fifty percent again with respect to Ariane Five. This is really the last step, the best what you can do before reusability. And reusability yeah, so, will I mean, be very clearly the next step. That's for sure. Yeah. So you, with something like Ariane Five, and you've you've gone through this like brutal cost 
cutting exercise and you're you're, you're going and obviously safety mm. i'm assuming and uh, is is still paramount but you're sort of knocking off the price at some point did someone say with this particular design we're now hitting that brick wall mm. so ariane 6 is is that next step where you say we're going to have to start with a whole new design if we're going to get the next bunch of cost savings is is that roughly the story there Six is not really a completely new design. It uses uh, high thrust uh, liquid propulsion. It uses high thrust solid propulsion. It uses uses cryo propulsion. Main the main elements which are, have been developed for Ariane Five are still on Ariane Six. In my view, Ariane Six is a fully industrialized Ariane Five. The best Ariane Five we better we we ever got. And uh, as you say, it is a sort of brick with a non-reusable launcher. I think this is the benchmark. You will not uh, go far beyond and do something any better than Ariane, Ariane 6. If you wish to get by a factor of uh, 5 or 10 launch costs, you need something, something new. And the something new is reusability, for sure. Um- and um, you are currently at ESA, the, the head of the preparation of the future for space transportation, mm-hmm. right? And so we are going to talk a little bit about all this future and, and reusability. But before that, uh, I mean, um, we just had a quite uh, historical launch last week. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. I do. I <laughs> you remember. Know, if you have any memories left. <laughs> and uh, yeah, um I understand that you, you well, of course, you were talking about the James Webb launch, and I understand you, you and, and some of your colleagues, like Daniel de Chambour as well, you, you guys have been involved in this project for a long, long time, right? With NASA and with the different stakeholders, Ariane Spass as well. Can you tell us a little bit about this, this process? How, how, how in the world did uh, James Webb end up on top of an Ariane 5? That's an adventure, huh? So, first of all, it didn't happen three years ago. This is a long-term, strong motivation for international cooperation. And at the very beginning, selling uh, a big project, which is at the edge of science, as Web is, one of the sales arguments uh, which helps is international cooperation saying we are doing this in a theater and Europe is interested, Canada is interested, we are not alone. This is something of interest for the overall international uh, science community. So at the very beginning, this was uh, one of the international cooperation projects NASA was discussing with partners at the end of the 90s. And um, at that time already, uh, uh, at that time, already the European launch uh, solutions were very attractive because uh, high high cadence and uh, very reliable. So this was a selling argument, and this is something. And the which, golden period you were talking about. Yeah, the golden period. And this is something uh, we should be proud of together because. We, uh, this international cooperation was selected for political reasons, sure, but not only. There was also a technical reason behind Germany. And Europe was uh, 
was really good uh, and is really good in, uh, in the launch business. So this was at the end of the 90s and uh, and uh, Europe decided as far as I know to participate around uh, uh, 15 to 30%. 13% was the number and this is uh, the, the observation time we we get today back from uh, this investment. Things became serious later. So web design started. The decision was taken quite early to go for a foldable mirror. This was a revolutionary decision. And uh, one of the reasons for taking Ariane 5 was also the big payload compartment with Ariane uh, 5 as a diameter of uh, uh, five meter forty and offers an inner diameter usable for spacecraft beyond four meter fifty. So that's that's again um, best in uh, best in class. So the payload conditions of Ariane five were best in class. The performance which was offered and the growth growth potential was best in class. The reliability was uh, was top. So a lot of reasons. Things became serious then later, and I remember very well when I went for the first time to Baltimore. Uh, it was in November, and there I heard personally for the first time the name Obama. Never heard about a politician named Obama, and he was running there for primary, and uh, this was in 2007. 2007, things started to become serious. We made a preliminary mission analysis together with NASA. We, meaning Ariane's bus uh, as launch uh, operator, NASA and ESA as agencies. And then shaping started. And the real work started quite late uh, in 2015. And we really had four years of intense adaptation work to adapt Ariane 5 to this uh, jewel that has some specificities which needed quite some, some, um, some adaptation work. And this occupied us over, over the last four years until this wonderful Christmas gift you were talking about uh, brought to us on the 25th in the morning with a wonderful web launch from, uh, from French Guiana. I think I could feel the global as 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 the payload released in space. I could feel the 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 whole global astronomy community relaxing their shoulders mm. <laughs> all at once. No, it's a long way to go yet, though, yeah. Julio. I know, I know, but launch <laughs> launch know, is the a big launch, part though, of yeah. it. Um, yeah. And and really, how about you? Because you you were one of the leaders behind Ariane 5 uh, for this particular launch. How does it feel to have such a responsibility now that we know that it went well, right? First of all, you described it well. It was quite a spiritual uh, moment when we were released. For me personally, I had a, a circle which remained unbroken between the first Ariane 4 launches, the first Ariane the first Ariane 1 launches, the first Ariane 4, which I witnessed. Uh, and now now web, web was something culminating because uh, we all felt part uh, of a sort of Stardust community of uh, science and industry bringing this tool up there. So something very spiritual of um, an 
a great accomplishment and being a little part of it uh, was 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 quite a big big feeling in terms of responsibility yes it is uh, something special if you have a customer for 10 billion on board uh, which cannot be replaced if you fly to telecom satellites it is uh, an economic endeavor uh, of uh, an important endeavor but if it fails you will find replacement and here you will not here you will have a generation of astronomers a generation of uh, telescope builders being around you and you have destroyed something irreplaceable so this brought an extra responsibility on us and uh, i would not say that we put more care into this launch because we wanted to do it as precise as all the others not overdoing things and overdoing things means doing things wrong we wanted to put all needed emphasis but doing it uh, as well as all the others but that was a question i was going to ask was you've 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 been knocking down the prices but lots of these launches obviously they're they're different you need different you, you know you've adapt you've adapted them and things like that it you've already answered the question i guess and I, and i guess i i knew what the answer was going to be but is is there no temptation when there's a launch that's mo- as monumental as this as you say it's a generational mm. launch that that the end there's this kind of memo that goes out to the engineers and, and the builders saying you you do know that when you're building this is this is for the web this this component so it, it better be right mm. is 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 there none of that going on is is or is that just always built into the actual into the into the building of of any ariane specific ariane uh launch vehicle in, in general, we do not dedicate launch vehicles to missions. You could swap them at the latest moment. And uh, this we could have done with web as well, just changing the vehicle for, for web. What we tried to do for web was to select some best components for providing best injection precision. So we took the inertial navigation units with best precision together we used, for example, one Vulcan engine, which was uh, quite one of the best we've ever built, meaning that it has had uh, a very precise uh, performance, allowing to very much fine-tune uh, the trajectory again. So these kinds of things we did with the hope to give some extra not-sold performance to, to web. If you are very precise in injection, web needs less of its own propellants to come to the final L2 uh, orbit. And each kilogram of propellant, which is saved during this uh, final positioning, gives extra lifetime to, to the telescope. So this was something where we have been working on. We took great care not to have... Uh, difficult uh, waivers to instruct during production, for example. So in this kind, but in a quite natural way, I think all our engineers over the supply chain took care saying, oh, this is for web. <laughs> I have a second <laughs> look, sure. So so, so your example would say that the Vulcan engine mm. is, is that it is, you'd say build four of them, you'd stick them on the test stand and the one with the best tolerances is, is the one that 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 you that you put on the 
on the James Webb okay. launch vehicle. Did I understand that correctly? Yes, because we could do yeah. it. we could do it. So we took the one which yeah. was the most precise, and it was available. So we would have been uh, criminals not to use it. <laughs> Very <laughs> simply, so yeah. uh, when we could, we did it. But we did not wait for years and then pick out the the best of the row. Because they I are have all good. to say, it paid off. It, it paid off because yeah, I, I, I think it was only two days ago that NASA made this statement and how the lifetime of James Webb, if, if it deploys correctly, right, um, mm -hmm. it will be significantly beyond 10 years thanks to the in part, a big part of it in the precision on how Ariane 5 performed for its launch. Yeah, this is this was the right in the middle philosophy. Take 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 all the components with uh, with the best precision in terms of uh, variation of thrust, for example, for the engines, uh, the solids as well. We took a pair of solids, which was really very nicely tuned. So now that the, now that let's say the show is over for uh, for for at least the Arian the Arian part. Okay, uh, how do you feel? Do you feel some pride? Some um, I don't know, can you, more relaxed? How do you feel now? First of all, totally relaxed. This is something where you really... <laughs> and I think, Julio, for you, you have witnessed the launch that I have done at uh, this moment is spectacular. When web went off and you saw the solar arrays coming, coming out two minutes later, this big relief is something which is spectacular and we all we all had it and I still do have it. Pride, yes, but as a member of a community, not as an individual, I'm not proud of what uh, Rudy has been doing because this was just a little part of uh, of the community. But I feel as a European and as a partner of, uh, of NASA, I share this pride with the colleagues from NASA. It's a big community. It's really a world community of uh, of science and rocketry. And this this pride that we have now, these wonderful sharpest sharpest eyes ever built in in space. Yes, I think we all share it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> directly even after I'm the launch, I've never been so tired uh, <laughs> all this year than than the last three days. I, for the last three years, I would say on the podcast, virtually there's. I don't think there's an episode that that went by where we didn't sort of stress over the James Webb launch, and and, I, and I've, <laughs> as in it just felt like the most stressful launch that they'll that there will ever be. Like you said, it's a generation of work on top of a on top of a rocket. That where the Americans are looking at the Europeans, going a this, generation this of work, not, but, <laughs> but it's, the, it's a generation of work, of work past, but it's also defining a, yeah. a whole generation of future yeah. work for astronomers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it, the stakes couldn't be high, and we've stressed about it. And then when the launch happens, is like I, I was super relieved, but I don't feel as I've had the same amount of relief as the stress that I've had. So I. <laughs> I can I can only imagine that that that's like multiplied by a billion. Well, because for it's still deploying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. It's not it's not over, and I mean, wet is opening opening science in so many areas. It's just incredible having having the possibility to get a faint of the dark age, having the opportunity with spectrometers to look into planets' atmospheres and. It brings us so much closer to, 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 to our origins and to the origins of life. 
that uh, for me personally the stress is over uh, once we get the first uh, nice sharp picture commissioned uh, in six months then we will all lean back all together because all our colleagues from uh, science at ESA and in the community they still they still have the same uh, pressure and no relief at all with respect to us the launcher guys are the 10% happy few <laughs> we've done our job yeah, so I mean, we cannot I'm, influence any more the, the destiny of is, is there more is there more stress and pressure with the with the science payload type payloads you know you because you, you've done rosetta you've done bepi colombo and things like that on an ariane 5 are they are they more stressful than the than when you were doing you know geostationary satellites up to because of this thing you said that they're kind of not replaceable and and <laughs> and there's they're like a whole community's work rather than a commercial entity's work. Especially, that- especially when you have to hit a certain launch window, by the way. Hmm. Yeah. So is that, were they, were they more stressful launches, it, it, the, the kind of science ones? I mean, obviously the web one is just, has <laughs> that with bells on. <laughs> no, but uh, other ones were spectacular as well. well the first spectacular launch uh, we did with Ariane for Science, one of the first, uh, was a crazy idea of uh, an astrophysicist who wanted to use an aspirator to get stardust on board and to analyze it on board of a uh, sonde. So Ariane 1 was launched uh, to fly the JOTO mission to get stardust on board of a probe and to uh, to do chemical and physical uh, research on it and if you do that with the launch moment with a, a unique opportunity and you know that the next opportunity is coming in 178 years or so this is <laughs> this is another <laughs> form of stress with respect to geostationary satellites and i had a lot of stress also with uh, telecom satellites at the beginning that this was because we all were so young <laughs> lacked experience um, but science by by nature the the, the, the the exploration exploration by nature goes ways only once and if you go the, there the, once. this pale this payload that you mentioned that to aspire to 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 take dust do you mm-hmm. was was that the Giotto mission it was Giotto flight uh, uh, flight 14, 86 in 80 85 in 85 because comet halley was in 86 yeah it was before right it was um, the mission uh, which was imagined by uh, roger bonnet and uh, when it was done uh, we were all very relieved and uh, then the uh, our colleagues from science came back six months later saying so this was nice but now we want more now we want to land <laughs> the next one was Rosetta. That's Rosetta. You know, really, I don't know if I ever told you, but Kyoto uh, was probably the reason why I ended up mm-hmm. in, in working in the space. Yeah. Um, I mean, yes, of course, Carl Sagan was a big influence, yeah. but uh, this launch, I remember 86, I was in Argentina, seven years old. My parents woke me up mm-hmm. to see this comet. You, and saw, you, saw, also, Giotto, the, 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 you saw the Halley comet? 
I saw it. I saw yeah. it when I was saying my, my parents woke me up middle of the night to see yeah. it. But also the the mission, the mission that was most known was Giotto, yeah. uh, with uh, images coming from the European Space Agency. But that that idea of of going to a comet is probably what uh, seven years old. You know, it, your your launch of Giotto was my Apollo in a way. Yeah. It's. Yeah, and I, I, I imagine, I imagine Julio, that today there's a seven-year boy in Argentina who's heard about Web, and this will happen again. Meaning, mm. you have these unique experiences, and I very well remember the years '85, '86 comet years between uh, Giotto chasing a comet and Halley being a universal event like Life Aid. These were the first universal events which melted uh, my, my, at least my generation together. Yeah, I, and, and, and thanks to the precision of Ariane 5, if you were seven watching the James Webb launch, you might even get to use it when you got to university. As an astronomer, yes, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is crazy, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. absolutely amazing. Mm. Really, you mentioned you mentioned all this. Uh, well, you, you were going into all these different big launches that we had. Uh, Matt mentioned some of of them. Like uh, you even mentioned Rosetta. There was also big big launches like the ATV. Do you have any particular favorites or anything particular to to highlight? Uh, my heart beats for science. That's very very clear because uh, uh, once they are up. These machines produce so many surprises and give give answers to not to, to questions that have never been raised. This is something which, for for me, is the most fascinating uh, part: uh, science and, uh, and exploration. And now we have five Ariane fives, Ariane five launches left, right? We still have five left. Yes. Okay. We will probably do four next year. And the last one will then be again a very special one. And Ariane 5 will fly probably its goodbye mission with a science mission called JUICE, uh, bringing, uh, bringing us closer to the icy moons of Jupiter. So Ariane 5 is, is then, will then retire, but can be proud of its uh, scientific success. And the launcher which went to Jupiter, launcher which... Uh, went twice to the second Lagrange point, uh, uh, once with the uh, radar um, uh, telescopes, uh, Herschel and Planck, now again with Webb. Ariane 5 chased uh, asteroids with uh, Rosetta. So it's a jewel for, for science. I think our colleagues from science, they... They have a special part of their heart in favor of Ariane 5 as well. But 6 will follow. We will have uh, science missions with Ariane 6, which will be exciting as well. I I think I'm a little bit subjective, right? But to me, it's one of the better looking rockets out there. The shape is so iconic. Um, You mentioned that you were in the transition from Ariane 4 to Ariane 5. And now we're going to have the same transition, right? With the lower number of Ariane 5 launches as we build up the cadence for Ariane 6. What do you take from that early transition from Ariane 4 to Ariane 5? How, how is life in our, in our area during that period? I imagine really busy at the spaceport in particular. 
First of all, it happens each 25 years. So there is no experience build up. We are not in the car industry where you have a transition from one model to the next each three to four years. In space, a change of generation of launches happens each 20 to 25 years. So something where you cannot build on experience. In terms of complexity, um, all eyes will be riveted to Ariane 6 to get the new baby well born. And uh, the last year of a development is an extremely exciting uh, year because you get this beast alive and this beast showing its life will show some surprises and all this final testing will be very intense. So you will have all engineering focusing on um, this um, uh, final final year of development. What is very difficult, and this will be our challenge next year, and we will succeed it, is to get the right engineering level also for keeping Ariane 5 uh, in a sort of best-in-class and quality. And uh, I know that around Ariane 5, there are some very motivated people, and this is what counts. People count. Nothing else. People count. And if you place the right people, and this is the case for Ariane 5, around uh, this uh, these last years of exploitation, I'm confident that it will go right. And we have the right people in Ariane 5. And again, what's very interesting, I did it on Ariane, I did the last launches on Ariane 4. I was in charge of uh, uh, launch engineering for Ariane 4 at the end of uh, the Ariane 4 exploitation. And it was very, very interesting because I was working like an entrepreneur quite alone. And we took took decisions uh, in small teams. And all eyes were riveted on Ariane 5 and the upcoming first ECA launches of uh, the new cryo upper stage. So we were in a sort of shadow, but having a lot of responsibility on our shoulders in Ariane 4. And this will happen again on Ariane 5. So it's a very good engineering school for young engineers as well, because you you get your part of responsibility. That that actually did was one question. I always think you've got this stream of data that comes off a rocket like Ariane five. <laughs> is there any is there is there any kind of is there new information each time that a rocket like that flies that? That is surprising and unusual that you that you try and get to the bottom of, or or is it mostly routine data? What, what's 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 the story there? That's something which is really surprising. And uh, a rocket is like uh, like a body, like a human body in that way. Even the last Ariane four brought us surprises, something we had never seen before, and we would not expect that we would need one hundred and sixteen flights to get another surprise where we all did not understand at the very beginning what was happening on board. And this still happens on Ariane 5. And in rocketry, I think we are there where aviation was in the 30s of last century, meaning that we are starting to build a real business and things are really ramping up. But there are still a lot of unknowns. And uh, on Ariane 5, this is part of the excitement for engineers as well, that you get really difficult uh, Sometimes difficult news and uh, you work over more than one year to understand a complex technical issue. This is really fun. 
There's no mm. routine. The routine <laughs> is for the next generation. <laughs> yeah, well, that's. I mean, it's really interesting because I mean, I, I guess a lot of people just see a rocket and just think it's a tank full of fuel with a with a with a candle on the bottom. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's exploding, but but I guess yeah, and it's just the fact there's so many things, you know, so many different data points going on, and mm. and it's really surprising that you can have yeah, just new data and surprising data on something that's so tried and tested. Yeah, but uh, you are flying at the edge. You're flying of the edge of uh, technology, of the edge of knowledge, and of the edge uh, of your materials. And uh, then look to this. Uh, it seems it seems a lot if you look to Ariane five, uh, Ariane one, two, three, four, five, two hundred, roughly two hundred fifty flights. Well, if each flight is half an hour. So you divide two hundred fifty by two. You have one hundred twenty-five hours locked in your uh, space lock. Well, I have more mm. than 3,000 glider hours. I'm a much more routine glider pilot than a rocket engineer. <laughs> yeah, that, uh, yeah that, that's incredible. It's a great way of looking at it. Yeah, that's it's putting it in perspective, eh? Mm. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Imagine a car manufacturer, the, the, the millions of hours that they have of data. For testing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Never saw yeah. it in that angle. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So really, now we were discussing the... Um, the the these the final flights of Ariane Five, and you are currently wearing two hats. On the one side, you are you're heading Ariane Five, and the remaining flights for ESA, but you're also the head of the ESA future preparation for what is space transportation, right? So I wanted to get a few words from you on what's what, what's going on. Where are we going with this? Uh, what's what's the future like? You, you're welcome to dream. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the invitation. First, uh, first thing, and there are two elements. I think the first element is that we will have to find the European way to build the future without uh, trying to to copy, but to learn. And this we did in the past already with uh, Ariane. I've We've discussed the Ariane success story at the beginning, and it was not a copy of uh, what has been um, done in the in the past. Uh, for the future, I see enormous possibilities by the birth of an eighth continent around around Earth and. I understand, my understanding is that the business which started with space transportation 30 years ago will become a much more interconnected uh, uh, business we, with the space ecosystem delivering services and being solidly connected to ground much more than today. It will become much more embedded and it will become much more difficult to define the frontier between what space is and what ground-based business is. So we will have much more embedded services. In connectivity is just the first, uh, first example and fast connectivity will never work without a strong space-based segment. Many other business areas will uh, raise once we have more populated this uh, eighth continent around us. And 
our approach in Europe should be based on uh, services like a travel travel agency, imagining a lot of new destinations, a lot of new ways to uh, to move to these destinations. Meaning that we will not have in future the one single solution, we will call it Ariane 5, Ariane 6, Ariane 7 or whatever. It will become, uh, in my view, an ecocosmos which will be populated by very different vehicles, by in-orbit services, by uh, fueling stations in orbit, by deliveries which go from one logistic uh, hub to another one. And uh, this will happen in the next 15 years. And it will need a European way of doing it. And uh, uh, these European solutions are prepared now with demonstrators, which will already provide learnings in the next years, from next year onward. So future is happening now, and what uh, the ecosystem, which will be populated by space services in 15 years, is started to be developed now. Can you can you give us an example yeah. of one of those sort of de- demonstrator programs? Yes, I'll give you some some demonstrator examples just to highlight that. The first thing we need to do is to take care of the environment. Ariane one to five and six are wonderful launches, but if you want to re- if you wish to ramp up the access to space, you need to change paradigms and you need to come to ultra green launch solutions this is something where we would like to put the european tech on it to use biopropellants to take care of propulsion to have minimum um, minimum uh, pollution and uh, here we test have the first test beds running next year already we have a an engine demonstrator which cuts cost by 10 and pollution by a factor of 100 called Prometheus, which will ignite next year, will be used then to fly test beds to learn reusability in a European way, first from Kiruna in Sweden for hop tests to atmosphere, then a year later from Kuru. And we will learn fast and we will produce progresses fast in the next uh, six, seven years. And if we succeed to build these ultra-green transport uh, services uh, to space and in space and in return from space, I think we, we will again succeed to do something in the European way. Maybe not with billionaires' money, maybe not at the same scale, but uh, another way, in another way of doing business with high social standards and with high environmental standards. Yeah, well, it's certainly something that the science community and, yeah, the, the actual kind of, particularly the European science community, I suppose, would be uh, would would be totally for, I guess. It's, so it, it's obviously in there. Is there any other kind of, you, you talked about sort of in-space services, like, uh, you know, space depots and stuff like that. Are, are those yeah. sort of demonstrators in, in the pipeline as well? Yeah, sure. One of the keys for economy is uh, cuttings. And if you use 
launches only to go from the Earth to, to space, you will never create the cut-ins. You will need heavy launches to do exploration. You will need smaller ones to deploy constellations, etc. You will spe need specialists for each business area. So you will have a fleet of launches. And the fleet of launches will create high fixed costs and high fixed costs will kill you in terms of environment because you need uh, you have a high footprint on Earth uh, in terms of uh, costs. So the first thing you need to do is to get to space as easy as possible with a high cadence. And this is this uh, warehouse approach where you have a logistic platform being, for example, at 800 kilometers uh, in Leo, and you fly everything to this uh, platform and then you dispatch by little specialists which remain in orbit and which refuel in orbit. So lots of new services uh, to be generated in the coming years. Uh, propellant depot would just be one example. And uh, using also uh, specialists for debris removal and for cleaning and uh, having them then on board to get their electrical propulsion refueled, all this kind of uh, services services will emerge because one thing is clear, uh, we cannot continue to pollute the space as we have done it over the last uh, 70 years. This is impossible. So we need to clean, clean, clean up and we need to be able to do this in an economic way. And so we will have uh, debris removal demonstrators, for example. The first one will fly in three years and show how to operate that. Life extension modules, giving extra life to... Imagine if you could send a life extension module to web. Uh, some of my colleagues are starting to think about that. would be wonderful. And yeah, to just really. give 10 extra years to, to web, which has is would be a pity to have such a jewel with sharp eyes at L2 but with empty sitting on empty tanks. We have to wait now for the final calculations to see how many years Ariane yeah, 5 yeah, gave sure. to web. Yeah, so I mean, is, is that something when Ariane, before before James Webb launched, where they, you know, is there, <laughs> is there a part of that, a part of that spacecraft itself where, where an object could attach to in the eventuality that someone did come up with a mission extension vehicle of some description? <laughs> So there's no hook. There is no adapter where you just have to hook on. But as far as as I know, the web designers took care that they do not shut any doors, that the possibility remains at reach. But they had so many firsts to succeed that this long down on the list. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Rudy, you mentioned space debris there, and uh, that reminded me of the recent anti-satellite test um, and how that put not well i i believe it put the 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 iss the iss had to had to send the astronauts to mm. to shelter right um and then of course i start thinking about the astronauts and i was wondering uh, there has been a lot of talk recently of uh, europe and esa having its own way to send astronauts to to space and i was wondering if you could say a few words about that I could say some personal words about that because this is a societal question which is more given to political leaders. I'm a total fan. I mean, I'm an Apollo kid, so what else could I be than a fan of 
meant space transportation in the fan to find ways to get this uh, more and more and more and more accessible to humanity. So, yes, on each vehicle we have looked to it. Uh, we started to look at it in the fan club already on RN4, on RN5. We had a hidden file. To, and we knew at each moment the effort required to get it generated for RN6. We would know that as well. But at the very end, it's a political decision whether Europe wants to be part of this big game or just a spectator asking for seats to others. I don't think that we should be a spectator. I think we should have our own seats. And I think that we could afford that. So we are starting fact-finding uh, analysis right now to build these facts for political stakeholders to dis discuss it. But again, will this discussion uh, result in a strong decision? I hope so. And I hope that we will build the arguments around. But this is... Uh, something which is not in our hands. Do we need yeah. to ask the public to start calling decision makers to support it? <laughs> From <laughs> the podcast? I, I, I think that yes, we should uh, we should have a general wake-up call. Um, so <laughs> this, we are in a new space race and this new space race goes also through human uh, space transportation. We are getting more and more confidence that access to space will become much and much and much cheaper in the future. So, uh, And if we do not take first decisions now, we might be left behind. We can change that today. Yeah, because I mean, if we looked at a sort of a, a similar situation in, say, India, where India have mm. got their own human space program, Uh, the, the criticism there is, of course, it's at the cost of the Indian science program. Would would mm. that not be the case? Would that not be the case in Europe? Of course, it will be. I mean, uh, of course, uh, it uh, will be at the cost of someone. If you put it in relation, I'm not. I'm not thinking about a 10 billion program which uh, has been proposed and cancelled in the past. Uh, the grey and white hairs will well remember Hermes in the 80s, and it's a difficult death. I think we can do first steps more in the class of some hundreds than some billions and uh, build first own uh, own experience. This should be. Mm. Should be should be at reach and should be a defi uh, challenge for all of us. And then again, it is a societal question. Like web, this uh, you won't earn any money with web. So what is is it useful to launch a, a laboratory, a telescope for 10 billion? No, you will not earn any money going to opera tomorrow and uh, operas don't earn any money <laughs> it's part of curiosity and culture so we have we have a few standard questions that we mm -hmm. ask uh, first um, um, if there is one space song that comes to your mind uh, that we can add to our playlist uh, uh, although we don't normally have a David Bowie band because yeah. <laughs> too many people say <laughs> too many people say David Bowie But yeah yeah So this is this is why I didn't want to pronounce his name. Um, <laughs> There's nothing wrong with Bowie. He's just I'm, very popular. I like John Lennon, Lucy in the Sky, because you can imagine whatever you want with this song. 
That's a good choice. It's a good choice. Do you know what? Yeah, I don't even think it's on either, amazingly. I might have to, yeah. I mean, it's a great choice. What a song. (laughs) Space mining. Mm -hmm. It's all about space mining or the mission. He knew it all along. (laughs) Or or the mission that's just gone to Jupiter, right? It's called Lucy. Yeah, so so the very last question we always ask is, was, was there some individual who was really inspirational to you that you would actually... Uh, like to sort of show around what you're doing now and 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 for them to see i mean normally we're talking someone that's died uh it doesn't have to be but it is there an inspirational person that you would want to see your kind of the work that you've been doing some of the space pioneers i think which have never seen their ideas uh, put into praxis uh, look to Tsiolkovsky who's been uh, a teacher in an elementary school and uh, he has published his book and he has never seen the success this has created. Hermann Obert in uh, Germany would be another example. Even if Obert went high into his 90s, I was a young student uh, of him in the early 80s and uh, I would like to meet him again and (laughs) Show him, wow. show him uh, a jewel like that. I think uh, these people. Oh wow! So you've met Obert? Yeah, yeah, he was one of my oh, teachers. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> but he was no, already that, that, in his eighties, and he was still wow. still teaching. Oh, that's crazy! Yeah, yeah, what what a legend! That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. That that almost that almost seems improbable. <laughs> I could be speaking to someone that's <laughs> because you're, I, I, you idealize like blown my mind. <laughs> you idealize and put people in a pedestal, but they yeah, were yeah. real people as well. Yeah, they once yeah. were real people. Yeah, yeah, but Crazy, I, mean, yeah? I mean, he was in his eighties, and I started uh, aerospace engineering in nineteen eighty. So, mm. was still, <laughs> seen from today, he was quite a young man. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, amazing. So, I, I, the one question actually before before you run out of batteries on your on your headphones was you mentioned that there was two or three people that were at the very start of the Ariane story, the the uh, Ariane one and their and their crazy idea. Who who were those people? Uh, for sure, Frederic Dallest. He was a clear visionary uh, in terms of uh, engineering, but also and um, at the same at the same level. In terms of uh, business, the second one would be Ralf Jäger. He was the first uh, commercial director of Ariane Space, and he convinced uh, Dallest that they could beat the shuttle in business. Like something totally crazy to think this in 1980 <laughs> that you could beat the big beast, which would fly 50 times per per year at a fraction of costs. So. Uh, the f- second crazy I would name would be Ralf Jäger. He's still still teaching at Berlin. Um, and for the third one, I would would take uh, an operational guy, uh, Guy Dubois, who invented the concept of a launch co- factory. Okay, we are no more in our pioneer age. Let's build a real factory, a launch factory producing up to 18 missions per year because we were able to accelerate. And this was something which happened on Ariane 4 quite a lot 
Nobody saw it because I have formatted 12 missions per year. But out of the 12, it happened that uh, nine were done in the second half of the year to save the business of the customers. And then you get nice extra tech as well if you get the transponders up on time. So Why? three different people, one for his uh, commercial vision, one for his uh, overall vision, and one because he was able to imagine that uh, space could be a normal industry. Brilliant answer. <laughs> thank you. For, I'm glad I asked. <laughs> thank you very much. I think thank thank you very much for that. That's been an absolutely brilliant interview. No, thank you, uh, Matthew, I, and uh, thank, thank you, you really. for for this uh, nice discussion. I really loved it. The Interplanetary Podcast is alive. There we go. I enjoyed that interview immensely. But something else I enjoyed immensely this week was watching the film Don't Look Up. Have you seen it? I have. I have seen it a few nights ago. Have you? Did you what? really enjoy it? I found it uh, quite depressing. Well, obviously it's depressing, but that's kind of the enjoyment of it, isn't it? It's kind of... Yeah, like, I mean, let, 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 it was directed by Adam McKay, right? Like, mm-hmm. this is a guy that made like, movies like The Big Short. He's very, voice, very yeah. good at explaining complex topics to the masses. He's sort of hero of me in terms of science communications, right? And how he makes yeah. it real yeah, and yeah. easier to, to understand. Um, and, and the movie is brilliant. It's and it's humorous as well. He's, he's one of the comedy writers on Anchorman as well, Adam. Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, he worked for many years with um, Will, Will Ferrell. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's a comedy writer, but he went into this tangent of these sort of movies about, I don't know, the financial collapse or the, the idea of a near-Earth object uh, hitting our planet. Uh, I I mean, it's unusual because the other two events, the, the Big Short and Vice, that I've th- those two big films are, are obviously events that have happened and it's done in a certain way. So if you like those two films, this is events that could happen, but done in a very realistic and very depressing way. <laughs> It's. It's. I just thought it was brilliant. I. I just thought it was such a good film. But there you go. The day that an asteroid of a co- or a comet hit our planet is not an if; it's a when. Yeah, right? it's a when. And if, but it, if we would happen now, we are at, at, at. In a way, we are at the in a good spot. In a way in which we would have the technology to, to deflect it, hopefully. And and there was a Dart mission launched a few weeks ago to start working on demonstrating this capability. But on the other side, we are in this society today in which, it, when, when I watch this movie, it's not that crazy, the reaction of the politicians and the reaction of the public, right? Mm. In, in, a, in a certain way, you can see it with climate change. We know and climate what? change is the asteroid or the comet that is coming, and we are failing to act on it. Mm. Yeah, well, exactly. Or COVID. It's, 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 well... Well, climate change, isn't it? It's climate change, which I talked about last week. And I guess you, because uh, I thought I thought it was a bit of an allegory about COVID, but I think it is more of an allegory of of um, <laughs> of climate change. An allegory on climate change, it. but also an allegory on on <clears throat> on, on planetary defence and neos. Again, well, it's a when, not an if. Yeah, and also like our distrust in science and authorities i mean you've got to like a film that mentions the peer review process and how important it is (laughs) and also there is a slight dig isn't there at bezos and musk and branson in terms of the you know large 
sort of corp corporations and tech people are not necessarily the best people to listen to when it comes to saving the planet. <laughs> Funny. So the the rich guy made you think of Musk and Bezos and Branson. And Jobs, really. That's a, it, me, He's kind of almost based on Jobs, wasn't he? To, to me, it was... When I, when I saw that character, it made me think of uh, Zuckerberg and and Steve Jobs combined. Yeah. Not so yeah, much yeah. Musk of, or Bezos or Branson. I mean, just... Branson is a lot more charismatic than that guy in the movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I and Musk is a lot more technically knowledgeable than the guy in the movie, right? I mean, I don't know what to say about Bezos, but the other two guys, I think, are they, 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 mm. yeah, they, they have qualities on, on their own, and I don't see the mix with the character. But yes, Zuckerberg and 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 Jobs as a mix for this. But it was, yeah, but guy. it's interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting thing of, you know, the the solutions to things aren't necessarily high-profile, self-acclaimed <laughs> uh, techno-geniuses. I think, you know, I, that's how I took it anyway. Yeah, sometimes, I, sometimes I just, you need, sometimes really you need certain... Uh, you cannot invent everything from nowhere and expect that it magically all works at once yeah, it you was, need the time it, of of, of uh, testing and validation yeah. and, and evolution right well what it reminded of me uh, reminded me of when musk wanted to send his mini submarine to sa- save the kids in the cave and it's like and having a go at the guy because he just wanted to do it in the traditional method <laughs> and it's just like uh yeah don't call him a pedo just because <laughs> Well, I listened to an epi- I listened to a very good podcast recently that that went on multiple episodes on the story of this uh, underwater cave um, rescue, which in the end they, they'd say the classical way and it was mm. risky, but it worked and everyone survived. Um, maybe I can drop the I, I, I can <laughs> I can promote that podcast here for a second. Uh, they are not paying me anything, but no, but it's called Against the Odds. And the first couple of episodes are about the the cave rescue, and it's brilliantly, brilliantly done. And then actually, after that, they go into the expeditions to the Antarctic. So also another favorite topic. Anyway, I digressed. Right. I digressed. No, you you had digressed. <laughs> what do you uh, think of the uh, What do you think of the of the president? I mean, talk about star cast, isn't it? For a Netflix original, it makes you realize just how much that's calling the shots if that's if that's your if that's your cast it's pretty good isn't I don't it? think it's so but much Netflix as I think it's Adam McKay because look at his previous movies again the big short yeah the names on that movie I think people know how intelligent he is and how those movies are have yeah. a long shelf life and are historical in a way and and they want I I Actors probably, or at least these high-level actors, want to work on interesting projects, intelligent projects like the ones Adam McKay does. Mm. I really, I I really like Adam McKay, as you can see, right? But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I really liked the President's Son. That was very good. <laughs> uh, yes, he was in Superbad. Remember his yeah, first yeah, movie. Yeah. He's, he's yeah, he's I very completely very forgot his name. Anyway, um, yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio, brilliant. I mean, for someone that started as in Titanic as casted as like the good-looking boy, <laughs> <laughs> now playing yeah. like a middle-age or late-age uh, astronomer, 
And it starts it starts with a little puppet of Sagan, doesn't it, as well? And a bit of astrodynamics. Yes. yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah you've paid attention. I like that part. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I like the explanation I'd- on how they start to determine the trajectory of the comet as well. Um and the, the drama when he was about to write the, the, the orbit, that was subtle. The, the yeah, whole, the whole story of the talk shows and the, how grotesque that is. Yeah. But it's, it's not oh, yeah, unreal. It's, it's not unreal. No, no, no. It's, it's totally how it will play. <laughs> Depressing, depressingly. I don't think it will play out like that. But You know, in a way, uh, you know what uh, reminded me of, in, in, in a way, the movie Spinal Tap? Yeah, because yeah, it's um, someone was telling me the other day that someone watched Spin- it's one of his favorite movies, and so he wanted to watch it with his wife. They both had worked in the music industry, um, so they both watched the movie. He find it, finds it really funny as usual, but the the wife doesn't find it funny at all. And only at the end of the movie, they realized that the the, the wife was never told that this was not a documentary. That this was <laughs> so she always thought it was just yes of course this is what happens in in <laughs> road show and in, in road trips of of music bands right and it's so ridiculous the ending about just working in a shoe yeah. shop yeah what are the hours but this one as well if it wasn't that you know it's a movie it could be reality and that's oh, the yeah. impressive yeah, yeah, part yeah, yeah. it's a good movie yeah, I think yeah. it's an important movie to have yeah no I do do you know what I think it will. Um, I think it possibly might get people thinking about it because it certainly has with the people that I watched it with. In this country, there was an MP called Lempic Opic, who's most famous for going out with one of the cheeky girls. Uh, and he was the only politician that ever really took asteroid strike seriously. He was a member yeah. of the British Interplanetary Society. His, his great-grandfather, Opic, is a very famous um, Latvian or... or, or um, I can't remember. Maybe it's Latvian. Um, pol- um, astronomer as well. So it was, um, yeah, so he's got a connection. But yeah, he was. there's only been ever one MP in this country that's ever been concerned with asteroid strikes, and it was him. Isn't that crazy? I mean, yeah. I, mean I, I have been somehow interested in this topic almost since university. I remember... Uh, I, when I was in Space Generation, uh, I helped run one of these paper competitions uh, called Move an Asteroid. Just, you know, funding and giving scholarships to, to students to go to the International Astronautical Congress with novel ideas on, on planetary defense missions, right? But right, you're right. It, 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 except maybe for movies like Armageddon, never really in the, in the public eye on a high level. Just crazy. Yeah. No, I mean, there's all there's lots of disaster movies, but I think this one is probably the one that kind of is the wake up call to. Uh, are we really going to treat it like it's this? It's the most realistic one. It's the most yeah, because yeah, exactly. even even yeah. at some point they play with the idea of like uh, yeah, some big guy with a nuclear weapon going up there like uh, uh, yeah. uh, Armageddon yeah. and Bruce Willis, and then doesn't does yeah. work right? So yes, yeah, brilliant. It's brilliant. It's, anyway. But I think we better go. Better wrap it up. Yes, this has been a it's been, been a long another year. another short, not short episode. <laughs> Thank you very much, Julio, for joining me again. And uh, yeah, I guess this will be the first podcast of the year. It's, you know, we're starting how we're meaning to go on. Yeah, that was quite a way to end 2021. 
with the amazing way to end 2020. Yeah, quite a way to start it with the interview of uh, Rudiger Albat. Yeah, absolutely. Indeed. Right, okay, Matt. that's it. Bye bye, Julio. Happy New Year, Matt. Bye bye. And you, happy New Year, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye bye.